0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor on Jaggeret and Turable land. Today, if you feel like every second person you know has suddenly got ADHD, you're not alone. You'll hear what's behind the spike in diagnoses and the people who are cashing in on increased demand.
1: Yes, a special report by the ABC's Angela Vapoyer, who has first-hand experience, and that's coming up very shortly.
0: But before that, Norman, I want to talk about some of the health stories from this week, starting with... One of the things we have heard a lot about and have been talking about in recent weeks is artificial intelligence and the role that it could have in healthcare. And there's been uh, people looking into how it is being used in medical imaging.
1: Yeah, and that's probably the first off the rank and has been now for some time. Now, just a a brief Description of this, I mean, artificial intelligence is a misnomer. It's not intelligence. None of these machines are intelligent in the way human beings are generally intelligent, ability to do all sorts of things uh, cognitively. These machines can't. They're just doing one thing after the other. And how they behave depends on how they've been programmed and what data you've put into them. So they're looking at at medical imaging, x-ray, ultrasound, things like MRI and what have you. It's used for interpretation of ECGs, it's not just in medical imaging. And what they describe is essentially an assistive technology, in other words, a technology that can sit beside the radiologist, the person interpreting the image, and help them make perhaps a deeper diagnosis or prognosticate because artificial intelligence has got the ability to bring data together that might not be readily apparent. It's got the ability maybe to replace coronary CT scans for calcium in the arteries with ultrasound using artificial intelligence. The problem, just briefly, and we'll have the link to this article on our website, is that how the artificial intelligence, how the machine is trained, is critical. And you've got companies that are competing with each other who are not being open necessarily about how they've trained the machines. And the downside is that sometimes they've been trained on too narrow data, too narrow patient groups, and that when they are brought into real-life use with patients from all sorts of backgrounds and situations, the accuracy goes down, and they quote... Uh, cervical spine x-rays for fractures, brain imaging, and other aspects of imaging. The important thing here is about transparency, as it is with all AI, and we'll talk more about it on the Health Report in the future, I'm sure, because when you actually use it for writing notes, depending on what program you use, you've not necessarily guaranteed patient privacy, but we'll come back to that.
0: AI is one of those things that a few years ago we were talking about it as if we could veer away from it if we needed to. I think we're really past that point now, so knowing how to get it right is so crucial.
1: Absolutely. It requires regulation, so we get the best out of it without the worst.
0: And another story that's come up, well, it's actually a preprint with some really tantalising results. It came out this week saying that... A shingles vaccine could help prevent some types of dementia, which is really promising in and of itself. But it also suggests by extension that some kinds of dementia might be caused by a virus.
1: So this has, been, this has gone back a while. Um, there have been people who believed that Alzheimer's disease has an infectious origin. We haven't got time here to go into all the different infectious agents that they think might have been related to Alzheimer's disease. But the virus in particular that people have been concerned about are the herpes viruses, particularly herpes zoster. They have the ability to live inside nerve cells and come out later. And that they've wondered whether or not this ability to live inside nerve cells potentially damage them could be at the root cause of some people who develop dementia. Really, This is a really cool piece of research which has yet to be peer reviewed as you say. They took data from Wales where those born before September the 2nd, 1933 were ineligible for shingles vaccine. So this is when they introduced the vaccine. The people who were eligible for shingles vaccine were born after September 2nd, 1933. Now they've assumed this is a natural study because there's nothing different about the people who were born before September 2nd, 1933, and afterwards it's an arbitrary date and time. So what they showed then over a seven-year period was that there was a significant reduction in risk of developing dementia, and it was greater in women than in men.
0: There's a couple of vaccines against herpes zoster. Which one did they get?
1: They got the Zostafax, which is the one that's available free in Australia, not the Shingrix vaccine, which is a DNA vaccine, which is more effective, not available on the NHS or PBS in Australia because it's too expensive, not deemed worth the money. So it's interesting that whether or not Shingrix, and they've got no way of proving this at the moment, whether Shingrix would actually be more effective at reducing the incidence of dementia.
0: We've been vaccinating kids against chickenpox for some years now. Will we see this as a benefit as they age? It's
1: going to be a long time coming because I think we've only, I think it's 2005, where chickenpox vaccine um, was introduced for children as part of the national immunisation schedule. So it's going to be... 60, 70 years before we know the answer to that. This is a, a shorthand way of finding this out and there've got to be other studies to further unfurl whether or not this could be real.
0: Mm. So, I mean, what's the bottom line here?
1: Well, we don't know the bottom line. This hasn't been reviewed, peer-reviewed yet. Um, when it is, we'll see how valid the reviewers think it might be. Um, it's pretty much a clinical trial, um, and there, uh, sorry, it's pretty much a clinical trial. And the authors suggest there are other ways of tying this down to proof of cause and effect. So there's other ways of tying this down to proof of cause and effect. But look, at the moment, people over 70 in Australia are encouraged to get and they can get free uh, shingles vaccine. And they probably should. And that will help to protect them against shingles and maybe dementia.
0: Another one for us to keep our eye on going into the future. Indeed. This is The Health Report.
1: Much has already been said about the wave of new ADHD diagnoses in Australia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, including here in the Health Report. Since 2018, prescribing rates of medications for ADHD have more than doubled and there's still a long queue for adults wanting an assessment from a psychiatrist. In fact, the question of access to care is the subject of an ongoing Senate inquiry. Now there's evidence that some clinics are effectively cashing in on the surging demand and promising salaries of more than $900,000 to recruit staff. ABC journalist Angela Vapier has been investigating for the ABC Schmeitgeist podcast. and you came to the story in a slightly unconventional way,
2: shall we say? Mm, yeah, you could say that. Uh, long story short, I ended up going to one of those ADHD clinics. So like a lot of millennial women during the pandemic, I found myself being fed a lot of ADHD content on social media, not to mention hearing about friends diagnoses and all of it sounded very familiar. So I started looking into a diagnosis and ultimately wound up at this one particular clinic. But when I went in for an assessment, there were a few things that surprised me, I suppose, about the experience. So firstly, I was diagnosed at the end of a single 45 minute telehealth session. Uh, It was an arts degree majoring in journalism, but they didn't, I never actually finished it. Number nine. Like I said, I do interrupt people, but I've got better at it. I get really like angry in traffic. (laughs) There were no physical checks. And as for other mental health diagnoses, which I don't mind telling you I do have, I mentioned them. And in at least one instance, the psychiatrist I saw more or less said, no, no, we don't agree that you have that. And at the beginning of the second appointment, we were talking about meds. So basically I wondered whether this car had fully functional brakes, which is maybe a weird thing for me to note in some ways because obviously I wouldn't have been there if I didn't have a strong hunch that I had ADHD.
1: So it does sound like an un- unusual process, but then mm. there's these enormous fees.
2: Yeah, the fees were a shock. So it was $950 for the first 45 minutes. $950. Of- yeah, that's right. And then $800 for the follow-up, which was also 45 minutes. Um, and less than half of that came back to me on Medicare. And then there was this schedule of appointments going forward, priced around $350, and about two-thirds of that was out of pocket. So it does stack up. But then I started to look into it and I found that there were a number of clinics that were using a similar model to this. And actually the fee that I was paying was at the lower end of the spectrum.
1: My gosh. Mm. So what does a typical clinic look like? What sets them apart from others?
2: Yeah. So I suppose much like ADHD itself, it's on a spectrum. They're not all the same. (sighs) Uh, And there are going to be instances where it's ambiguous, but... In general, what we're talking about is a telehealth-only model with a strong or a sole focus even on assessment and diagnosis in the initial treatment phase of ADHD. You've got high fees, you've got high salaries, coupled often with aggressive recruitment tactics, and then a quick turnaround. Like, in my case, it was as I said, a single session.
1: So not a typical appointment with a psychiatrist. Mm-mm. What was it that convinced you then what you'd experienced was part of a bigger issue?
2: Yeah, so as soon as we started talking to people about this, and we we spoke to a lot of different people, we spoke to GPs, psychiatrists, we spoke to patient advocacy groups, they'd all noticed it to some degree. But most of all, patients reflected this. Patients such as Anita Wall, who's a 41-year-old social worker living in Melbourne. <laughs>
3: So I was ringing around trying to find different places and I I did get one place and it was hit one for this hit two for this hit three for that and then hit four for ADHD assessments so I hit that number and it didn't answer didn't ring it just went to nothing and hung up and it wasn't just one clinic it was at least two or three where you'd hit that button and it would just go like You couldn't even leave a message.
2: Welcome to the back of the queue for an ADHD psychiatrist in Australia. Make yourself at home. Anita joined the queue last year, even though she already had an ADHD diagnosis. The problem was she'd lost touch with her psychiatrist.
3: Yeah, so when I went back to organise my biannual review, I was told by the clinic that he's no longer consulting from this clinic and that he's closed his books and no longer seeing clients. And I was not
2: made aware of that. So their books were completely full. They couldn't help me. With no one to renew Anita's two-year permit, her supply of meds was dwindling biannual reviews haven't historically been this much of a nightmare. But right now, there's a serious shortage of ADHD psychiatry services.
3: My GP knew how much I was struggling trying to find a clinic to take me on, and so she gave me the name of a clinic who I then engaged. They were saying to me that I needed a complete new diagnosis and assessment, which was not true. When I challenged that, I was met with, no, 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 we do things differently. And I thought, well, hang on a minute,
2: that's not right. I'm not paying for a whole new diagnosis. She was quoted more than $1,500 for the re-diagnosis she didn't want, covering two telehealth appointments, and half of that was payable up front to secure the booking in the first place. And if she had been re-diagnosed and ended up on their treatment plan the clinic would have collected almost $17,000 in fees as a result, covering a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, a GP and a dietitian. The out-of-pocket cost for Anita is harder to tally, but it would have landed somewhere between $4,300 and $12,000, depending on the timing of the appointments. Because at some point, Anita's Medicare safety net would have kicked in, meaning Medicare picks up 80% of the subsequent bills that year. Although no matter which way you cut it, the clinic would still have come away with that full amount, just shy of $17,000. It was
3: disgusting and actually cashing in on people's disadvantage, which is just horrific. I challenged and I said, no, not on, and they didn't like my answer and I didn't pay anything and I walked away. And then that's when I,
2: I, I cried and <laughs> thought it was hopeless. Eventually, she found a different psychiatrist who did her review, but not until after she'd run out of meds. I went unmedicated for probably about two
3: months and I know that's not long but it is for somebody that relies on the medication to get up in the morning, focus. It's important that we have that so that we can function.
2: The access crisis has been showing up on ADHD helplines
4: too. Well, there's definitely been an increase. So, year on year, the call centres are getting flooded more and more with people who are in distress.
2: Christopher Wiesman is a director and board member of the ADHD Foundation.
4: The numbers have, you know, doubled, if not tripled. So, we're looking at probably 30,000 by the end of this year.
2: And he says a lot of those distressed calls are about fees.
4: We're seeing clinics popping up everywhere, and some of them are charging up to $3,000 for a diagnosis. $3,000,
2: that is really at the upper end of what I've heard about. How common is that?
4: Look, we have lots of anecdotal evidence to support that um, the fact that the $3,000 is not an uncommon number. It's not one assessment in isolation, it's a series of processes that these clinics. Designed to justify, I suppose, the cost. There might be a small percentage that's covered, but the majority in the private system is unfortunately out of pocket. Some people will charge two, three, four, five, six hundred dollars, and they're the you know the reasonable people that aren't interested in gouging the markets. The average seems to be between fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred. Three thousand is certainly at the extreme, but there is a lot of people charging that.
2: All specialists in Australia, and that includes psychiatrists, are able to charge whatever they want. There's no cap. But because the public system very rarely treats ADHD in adults, those patients are forced to either pay the market rate or go without treatment. And there's evidence that those dynamics are distorting salaries. The ABC has seen recruitment emails and text messages sent from multiple clinics to external psychiatrists promising enormous take-home pay. For example...
5: We are hiring consultant psychiatrists.
2: This is a text written in all caps lock, by the way, and there are three exclamation points after the word hiring, just to give you a sense of the tone.
5: Over $900,000 per annum. Minimum income guarantee, $3,800 per day. Signing bonus, $3,000. It's
4: entrepreneurial individuals who have seen a market need and have sought to exploit that need. They charge whatever they need to or whatever they can in order to secure the maximum amount of profit. And what they do is they seek to exploit the vulnerable.
2: So I wanted to know what an experienced ADHD psychiatrist outside of this model of practice might make of it.
5: My name is David Castle. I'm a professor of psychiatry, currently working in Tasmania, University of Tasmania. But the views I express here are obviously my own views and not necessarily those of my employer. I'm a psychiatrist of some 30 years standing. I've got a strong academic background as well as a clinical background.
2: And like every psychiatrist I spoke to, on and off the record whilst making this episode, Professor David Castle is very much aware of these clinics.
5: I mean, I have heard these stories and I don't think that they uh, cover our profession with glory um, in that it seems at the upper end of that is really an excessive amount. You know, I always have an issue with making money out of human unhappiness and misery.
2: And what I wanted to know was whether there was anything wrong with how the clinics like the ones Anita
5: and I went to are running.
2: For example, could paying all that money mean that a patient is more likely to be diagnosed?
5: Well, I would hope that people who set themselves up in this way and are supposed experts would be, you know, honorable in terms of not making a diagnosis to suit the patient. But as they say, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You could fall into the trap, if you're not vigilant about yourself, of seeing everything as confirming a diagnosis, and then if you are charging a great deal of money, you also have people who almost expect a diagnosis, you know, I've come and I've paid, and therefore, how can you not diagnose me? So they're all of those sort of subtexts.
2: Then there's the telehealth question. In particular, is that the right way to diagnose a person with ADHD? especially if a face-to-face appointment isn't an option.
5: I don't think that it's the best way to do an initial assessment. And if the initial assessment is going to be your only assessment of that individual, my suggestion would be that that is not quite optimal. It doesn't mean that it's not valid, but you get a whole lot of clues and a whole lot of little items of clinical nask on a screen, you don't get the same human interaction and variation of expression and gaze and so forth. So
2: valid, but not ideal. And he feels similarly about a lack of physical assessments.
5: Well. Psychiatrists wouldn't necessarily do a physical exam in the sense of you know having people unclothed and doing a, a full neurological examination, but somebody doing that is really important.
2: Professor David Castle is less worried about the scenario of a single session diagnosis, but at the same time
5: it's not his usual habit. You know you can do a very reasonable job in a single session. But my own practice is to have at least two. and if you're unclear about it, Um, have another.
2: And if too many corners are cut, the risk is missing something major that should be part of the clinical picture.
5: You need to exclude other psychiatric disorders, as you quite correctly espouse, because you can get into misdiagnosis. And then on top of that are the fact that ADHD, as with many other psychiatric disorders, tend to fly in a flock with other disorders. So you have to do a proper assessment because, as you say, some of the treatments, stimulants in particular, can be quite dangerous in people with severe mood disorders, severe anxiety disorders, and psychotic disorders, and that all needs to be weighed up.
2: So there is an argument to be made that the quality of care, in some instances, is being compromised, even when the fees are set at a premium. The whole thing was, like, really freaky because it cost two and a half thousand dollars I thought it was a typo when I first read it because I was like $2,500 is a huge amount of money to put on something that I have no idea what it's going to mean and if it's going to be helpful and if it's going to make a difference. All up, it was just under $2,500, maybe like $2,300. I was surprised, but I just. But when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I must be having quite a few sessions, but yeah, really, I think I was in there once or twice, a couple of phone calls, an hour all up of
4: actual <laughs> sitting there physically talking.
2: What is the kind of professional rationale? Just trying to put ourselves in the shoes of these psychiatrists. What rationale could they offer?
5: Well, I mean, they would say they highly trained. They gave many years of their life to their studies and they developed their skills and why shouldn't they be paid? But doctors, um, there is something different about doctors, and I actually share this about doctors, um, is that we should be better. I think this is a failing, to my mind, of the systems because there should be caps around it, I think. Building in a cap on the extra amount that you're allowed to charge I think would go a long way towards resolving all this. But that will never happen because, you know, as well as I do, once people have been used to making a certain amount of money, they're not going to give that up very easily.
2: Capping specialist fees isn't the only idea getting around, though. A lot of people throw up their hands, they say this is an intractable problem or just wait for this wave to go away. No. No, it's not. You say there is a solution. Yes.
6: I'm Dr Diane Grocott. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been doing psychiatry for about 30 years, but I've only been involved with ADHD for about 10. And I run an internet ADHD clinic. How many patients do you have? Probably about 800. Just you? Yes, I've got people on my books who I've seen. A lot of them are back with their GPs, so the GP is managing the medication and they'll come back and see me in two years' time for
2: a review for their permit. Diane Grocott's clinic is mostly online, but she conducts her initial assessments face-to-face. Also, her fees aren't thousands of dollars. They're closer to the out-of-pocket cost of seeing a GP. And the reason we're hearing from her is that two years ago, she had a bad day, or two bad days really, that led her to an idea.
6: 2021, I opened my books for literally 48 hours and we had 70 new referrals. I reckon I've been into emotional paralysis. I can't choose who's going to get fed because I was looking at all these. Even if it's one paragraph, this is a student in year 12, they desperately have ADHD. If we could get them some medication, then they can probably get their uni course. Or this person has an ice problem and if they could have their ADHD treated, they might be able to get off the drugs and not
1: go to jail. I, I was using meth about three years, three and a half years, but that was like everyday use. People using it to get that massive dopamine release, and I was using it to just feel normal. I just felt levelled instead
5: of so frantic all the time. I was extremely different from everybody else, and I knew something wasn't right, but I just didn't know where to go to talk to people about it.
2: After that 48 hours of being forced to make a series of impossible choices, she decided to look beyond her clinic. And I connected
6: with lots of other colleagues and said, we need to change the system. There aren't enough psychiatrists to see all the patients who need to be seen. We've got to get ADHD treatment into primary care, back into primary care, where it used to be 30 years
2: ago. And to do that, though, you need trained GPs. So the whole point of training GPs would be to take the pressure off psychiatry as a whole. Remembering that underneath all this is a pretty basic supply and demand problem. In fact, Diane Grocott says GPs can already do more for ADHD patients than most of them realise. But for the moment, they're afraid to.
3: It can be quite frustrating because the bulk billing doctor I went to, I felt like there was a little bit of disdain. There was, I, I, I can't say this 100%, but I, I did feel like he kind of just looked at me wanting to get stimulants when I came to him with a, like, hey, I have ADHD. What is it that GPs are
6: afraid of? There's the stigma being seen as an easy mark so then all the drug addicts will come saying, I've got ADHD, can you please prescribe for me? The fact that dealing with
2: ADHD well takes time and sometimes it's just lack of training. There's a legal fear as well. GPs are concerned about whether they are able to prescribe. Look, some GPs don't understand that if their
6: permit runs out, the same as with opiates, the GPs can give an emergency supply if necessary. There's so much misunderstanding and ignorance. So where some of them could have
2: helped a little bit, they just don't know what to do. So we're trying to help them to understand that as well. Training GPs isn't the whole idea, though. The other half is more controversial.
6: Trained GPs, probably credentialed, so they've sat an exam and they are safe To be able to treat ADHD with all of the comorbidities and initiate medication without that patient having to see a psychiatrist, it's actually skilling up all GPs, but some GPs having been credentialed to be allowed to initiate
2: permits. And allowing select GPs to prescribe someone with ADHD stimulants in the first place could make a dent in the supply problem. But it would also be a big change, most likely with some critics, because a lot of doctors and policymakers feel strongly about maintaining the existing controls on those meds. That said, change is more likely now than at any other point in recent decades. The Senate inquiry into ADHD is explicitly considering the question of access to medication on top of access to assessments and whether ADHD should be covered by the NDIS. We'll know more about how much concrete change is likely when we see the Inquiries report in September.
1: So, Ange, amazing stories there and just gobsmacking sums of money and Mm. really serious questions coming from David Castle there about the quality of care and whether, you know, like in your instance they're not taking a full psychiatric history, they're not particularly interested Mm. in that. Mm. You don't experience anything to go by. So, you know, after doing this investigation into model of care that diagnosed you, do you have any doubts that they made the right call on your part?
2: Yeah, look, I I would be lying if I said that I hadn't had that thought. Although, you know, interestingly speaking to so many ADHD patients, every single person had had those doubts at some point. So it it might just be, uh, I guess, part of the territory. But look, I guess the counterbalance here, the thing that sort of puts my mind at rest is that I am yet to find a mental health professional who doesn't see this diagnosis in me, (laughs) which is oddly reassuring in a way. And look, I, I have to say as well that I've started medication, I've been on medication for a few months now, and it has made my life miles easier. For instance, I don't know that I would have finished this story for you, Norman, without it, which is kind of a fun irony I think for that corner of, of the profession.
1: But if I'm allowed a point here mm. I mean you're not just an ABC journalist you're a stand-up comedian you do your own shows maybe at least once a year mm-hmm. I mean the energy might be to somebody with ADHD mm. but you get a lot of shit done.
2: Yeah I mean and, and this is the thing I think this maybe reflects the shifting understanding of what an ADHD profile is, and that it is a, I guess, a broader church than perhaps what we once thought. And yeah, it has room for me, apparently.
1: Well, Angela Vapia, thanks very much for covering that for us on The Health Report.
0: Thanks, Norman. And this has been The Health Report for another week. We'll catch you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.